Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 43. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Grass withers, flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. In 1722, John Newton penned these now famous lines. Might, might be familiar to you. They say, Amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. Was blind, but now I see. You recognize that line from the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, 545 or something like that, I think, in our 546. Blessed Assurance is 545. Yeah, 546, Amazing Grace in our hymnal. But Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that did what? That saved a who? A wretch like me. And in that hymn, there is this incredible confession about the human state. And it is that God saves wretches. God saves those who do not deserve to be saved. And this is a core reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God saves the ungodly. God saves the undeserving. Those who should not be saved, those are the very ones that God decides to save. But that leads to a question in my mind, if, if if that's what the gospel has done, if the gospel is the, the, this declaration of saving sinners, saving wretches, saving those who don't deserve to be saved, if that's the message of the gospel, why are churches still so full of people worried about measuring up? Why are we still, why are there still so many in the church that don't feel worthy of God's love? Why is there still so much compulsive work? in an effort to please God or to get his approval? Why is there still all of this stress about measuring up, feeling good enough? And I think there's a lot for us to learn in this narrative from the Gospel of Luke during this 
event of the crucifixion. And it is this incredible story of the salvation of a sinner, a wretch, at his most uh, wretched moment, and his also his most glorious moment. Just this, this incredible display of man at his lowest, and at the same time at his most glorious. The two of these being wedded together in this narrative. A man suffering the consequences and, and, and rightfully diagnosing himself. We justly so. He's at his lowest and also at his most glorious in this one narrative. So these, this passage begins with this reality that those are, who are to be crucified along with Jesus. Now... It's possible that these men were companions or of, of Barabbas. You remember that Jesus is being crucified in the place of Barabbas. They, they wanted to release Jesus and they, the crowd screamed, No, release for us Barabbas. And so Jesus, Barabbas is released and Jesus is, is, remains in custody and goes to the cross. It is possible that these men were alongside with Barabbas in the insurrection. This was the day of their, of their execution. And so Jesus literally stands in the place of the sinner, Barabbas, and dies along with possibly his companions. Now you remember, if you look up earlier in, in the chapter here, Barabbas is in jail because for leading insurrection and murder. For insurrection and murder, Barabbas is under, under penalty of, of execution. And so it's likely, no way to tell for sure, that these criminals aren't just, you know, like they are guilty of petty theft. That these are possibly insurrectionists along with Barabbas and, in fact, heinous murderers. People who have claimed the life of another individual. We don't know for sure, but we know that the Romans deemed their crimes worthy of death. And so they're led to this place called the skull. Now Matthew calls this place, he gives them, he, he calls this place Golgotha, which is the Aramaic translate, it's the transliteration from the Aramaic, Golgotha. So you've heard the term, there's the, the, we, with three different ways we call this. It's either the place of the skull, or the transliteration from Aramaic, Golgotha, or Latin uh, translates to Calvare uh, locum, or something like locus. I don't know Latin that well, but that you can hear that that's where we get the term Calvary, right? It is this place of the skull, Golgotha, Calvary. Many, many of our hymns speak about the love that was done on Calvary. And so this is the place that is outside of Jerusalem. We don't know the exact location anymore. Lots of speculation about where that would be, but there is this location Famously called the place of the skull, either either because it looked like a skull. Some like argue that possibly it was in this quarry area where if you looked at it from a certain angle, it looked like it had eyes and a mouth, like kind of a creepy, awful place. That's possible. Maybe because it was a, a, a site of a tombs, and so there were lots of skulls around there, or possibly just because it's a place of execution. They just call it the place of the skull. It was a place of death. But either way, he's led away to this place called the skull, Golgotha, to Calvary, to be crucified alongside with these thieves. And their responses are interesting. The other two synoptic gospel writers only mention the fact that the thieves join in the scoffing. It's clear that they revile Jesus along with the rest of the crowds at the beginning of the crucifixion. They revile Jesus. They are not pro-Jesus. They, 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 as it begins, 
they, they are not favorable towards Jesus at all. John doesn't really, he records that he's crucified between two thieves, but doesn't give us information, doesn't include the narrative of their thoughts of Jesus. But they both revile Jesus when they are first being led away to crucifixion, but something happens. Something happens in the midst of this event that causes one of them to have a change of heart. He begins to see himself differently. He begins to see Jesus differently. As one thief continues to harassment, the other begins to see something different. And first he rebukes the other thief, right? He says, one of the criminals, uh, you know, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other thief rebuked him. Do you not fear God? Since you're under the same sins of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, this man has done nothing wrong. This other thief begins to see something different. Somehow his eyes are opened. He begins to see something different in this man. Possibly, you know, you think, you, you think about the centurion statement when it gets done and Jesus dies, there's darkness covers the earth and there's the earthquake and the centurion says, surely this man was the son of God. I mean, there's this, there is this, um, this just incredible revelation of the injustice that's going on here with Jesus. So this other thief, there, first he has, there's two interesting, two interesting things that happen, but first... The first thing is there's a recognition of his own sin and his own deserved justice. The first thing is he sees. The thief sees. He says that their punishment is a deserved one, is one that is coming justly to themselves. But he also knows that Jesus' punishment is a violation of justice. He sees the sinless Christ, knows there is a great difference between his punishment and the one that Jesus is receiving. The thief sees. His eyes are opened. And he knows his own condemnation. He knows that he is, his death is one that he deserves. And he sees. And secondly, beyond seeing, the thief sees Jesus as a king who can bring true help to him. He sees and he believes that Jesus can truly bring salvation. He believes that there is a coming kingdom that Jesus will rule over and that if Jesus wills, he can bring him there, right? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. What a loaded statement that is. He sees himself clearly, someone deserving of justice, and he sees and believes that there is a, this man is a king who has a kingdom that if he would will it to be so, he could bring the thief into his kingdom with him. This is an, it's an incredible Reality, what we see here. I mean, you just just from the perspective of uh, just just the naked events on their own. Here is this man, possibly a murderer, an insurrectionist, a criminal, someone guilty of of, of crimes deserving of death according to the Roman authorities. He's this he's this this incredible this story. This thief on this cross, and he dies at just the right time. That he's hung beside the King of the Ages, and his eyes are opened. And he sees himself clearly. And he sees Christ clearly. And in that moment is saved from his condemnation. And is promised to be brought into Christ's eternal kingdom. It's just incredible. But what is more incredible is we don't see anything more than just his confession of sin and his faith in Christ. We don't see anything else from this man. Why? Well, he's hung on a cross. His death is going to be very sudden. 
It's going to be very severe. It is secured. This man is on his way. There is no good work he can perform at this point. There is no helping of his neighbor that he can do. He is dying on a cross. All he does is sees himself clearly, knowing he's deserving of the justice, of the punishment that he's receiving, but believing in Christ as a king who can save him. It's incredible to see this. But we must conclude, I mean, okay, great. He sees himself clearly. He sees Christ as it can save him. But isn't it a little too late for that? It's, it should, it, it's, a, it's kind of too little too late. I mean, can, well, I, I'm glad you saw it at the end, buddy. But you've spent 20, 30 years of your life being a criminal. It's kind of too little too late, right? It's like um, waiting to put oil in your car after it starts knocking. You know, you're driving along down the road. You want, is that a bad reference for you all? Some of the dudes know what I'm talking about. Maybe some of you ladies do. You're driving down the road, and all of a sudden, your, no, your motor starts making real bad clanking noise. Like, oh, yeah, I need to put some oil in. So you, you pull over to the side, and you add some oil. It's kind of too late at that point. You know, it's too little too late. All right? It's, it's like, um, it's like uh, you know, getting in a car accident and then reaching to put your seatbelt on. Well, it's a, it's a good sentiment, but it's a little too little too late. And doesn't it seem like with this criminal, it's just kind of common sense. Hey, buddy, I'm glad you saw it, but I'll be honest with you. The motor's already failing. You know, the accident's already happened. You can try to buckle up now, but no way. It's too late. That's how life works. Too little, too late. But man, do you, do you see the glorious reality? That is not what happens. That is not what happens. Instead, we get this incredible one-sentence promise from Jesus. Today, you will be with me in paradise. At just a service level, surface level, this is incredible. This is absolutely astonishing. The picture of this redemption, this man, again, he, he gets promised eternal life. And, and the man who promises it is not just somebody dying on the cross beside him. This is a man who three days later is going to raise from the dead just as he said he would. This is a man who commands nature, demons, commands diseases, commands life out of death on his own. This man who promises this is a man who has the power to back it up. And here is this criminal, a life of crime, deserving just punishment by his own, con- by his own confession, but looks to Christ, says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he has promised eternal life. This is incredible news just for this thief just on its own. Just that realization is amazing that God would do this. But the implications that we can draw from it are astonishing. If this is the sum total of what is necessary for man's salvation, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us and for our own salvation? David Gooding says in his commentary, The king's reply, speaking of Jesus, The king's reply granted not only immediate forgiveness, but also spelled out for the dying malefactor and for all who repent and believe. So the king's reply granted not only immediate forgiveness, but also for, and for all who repent and believe what forgiveness involves. Immediate and complete acceptance with God. Through these two simple things, seeing himself clearly, looking to the king and trusting and believing in the king, 
He's granted not only immediate forgiveness, but all that that involves. Immediate and complete acceptance with God. Jesus promised to him, today I tell you, you, or I will tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Not after you earn off your bad karma, not after you go to purgatory somewhere and work off all your bad mojo, not after you reincarnate and kind of get through all your bad stuff. No, he's saying, today you will be with me in paradise. For what? For seeing himself clearly and for trusting in Christ. And he is given this incredible promise. What does that tell us? It tells us, first of all, there is no one too far gone for Jesus to reach them. There's no one too far gone that Jesus cannot reach them. This man surely was too far gone. Right? If he was your... If he was your, uh, you know, kind of your, your project or, you know, say his, his mother or his father or his brother praying and laboring for this. Just, I wish, I wish he'd get his life straightened out. He's a mess. He's a wreck. And then the, the, the execution comes. The day comes. He's being marched off. It's surely too late. And it isn't. It isn't too late. for It is never too late for Jesus. People are never too far gone. No one is ever too far gone for Christ to reach them. Do you have loved ones that you have been laboring in prayer for and it feels like they're too far gone for Christ to break into their life? No one is too far gone for Jesus to reach them. That's the first implication that we see. Second implication that we must, we must see, salvation is a work of God for man, not a work of man for God. Salvation is a work of God for man, not a work of man for God. It is the work that God does. As John says in John chapter 1, it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of of God. Salvation is the act of God bringing a sinner to life. God is the one who does the saving. Man does not save himself. If man were up to save, if man, if it were up to man to save himself, then it truly is too late for the thief upon the cross. He has no good deed he can perform at this point. He has no righteous act that he can do. He has no way to go to God and say, see, I did X, Y, and Z. He is on the cross. Salvation is not the work, uh, is, is the work of God for man, not man's work for God. If that's true, it brings me back to uh, my first question. Why? Why then do we in the church still feel so stressed and so needy? Why are there still so many in a search to find worth and meaning and worthiness? If this gospel message is true, why then? And hopefully you've got enough clarity of mind to know yourself or know those around you who are just still on the treadmill of, try, of disappointment. Try, try, try disappointment. And constantly at a place of insignificance, feeling like I am not enough. Feeling like God couldn't love me because look at how messed up I am. 
Do you ever hear comments like that? I'm surprised at those comments I hear from some people sometimes when we're talking about different issues that uh, I, don't, I don't feel like I'm worthy of it. I don't, I'm not good enough. I don't feel like I deserve it. And there's still this, this search, this understanding of somehow we, our default position is that salvation is man's work for God instead of seeing that your salvation is God's work for you. That is the glorious message of the gospel. We aren't sitting here this morning in, an, in our own man's effort to get God's salvation. We should be sitting here this morning in absolute blown away gratitude in God's work for us. <laughs> That's the gospel. That's what God has done. That's what we see in this thief on the cross. He's not doing anything for God. God is doing all the work. He's seeing, he's believing gifts of God that are bringing about this man's salvation. So why are we still so stressed and so needy? Either we are filled with those who don't really know that gospel message. And that's a real possibility. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to risk it and throw it out there. That there is a chance and I, that, that churches are full And there are people possibly in this congregation here this morning who have never really for the first time understood what the gospel meant for them. That that the gospel, what Christ is doing is saving sinners. That they are, that you are the wretch in the song. That God's amazing grace has come to save. Maybe they have never personally dealt with the justice that they have or that you have coming your way as a sinner in rebellion against God. Maybe you've never truly laid your empty works and said, I have nothing, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die, a popular hymn. But maybe we've never come. I say, God, I've got nothing to bring you. All these things I'm trying to work so hard at, all the ways I'm trying to impress everybody, all the ways I'm trying to merit that, God, you would just love me. And all along, not realizing the gospel message is one of God does love you in your wretchedness. That's why he sent Jesus. Not for you to work yourself to become unwretched that he might love you, but that while you are still wretched, while you are yet a sinner, Christ, God loved you in sending Christ to save you out of your sins, that uh, you would see and believe and be saved. If you don't know Jesus in that way, in this place this morning, today is the day to see and trust Christ. Today is the day to confess Many churches are trying to get rid of the whole idea of confession of sin. We can't lose that. We lose the gospel if we lose the confession of sin. Today may be the day I have nothing to bring. I have no no merit to lift up to God. I see myself clearly. And all I can do this morning is cling to Jesus, that he would have mercy on me, and that his work on the cross would save me from my sin. Maybe you've never known But maybe you're in here this morning and you've forgotten that the battle for your acceptance with God is already settled. We're like the, there's there's a couple of crazy stories out there of these, a couple of Japanese soldiers 
that you know we're in this Pacific, you know, the Pacific Theater, and there's all these just islands just scattered everywhere. And there's this, this famous Japanese man who's on one of the islands of the Philippines who refused to believe that the war was actually over. He'd received a command from his commanding officer: stay and fight, stay and fight. Twenty-nine years later, some man finally gets through the lines and 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 and, and speaks with the man. And and he says, I will not surrender until my commanding officer comes back and tells me to surrender. So the man goes back home to Japan, finds his commanding officer who's now like a a used bookstore salesman or something like that. And they fly him to the Philippines to come and the man finally surrenders his sword. He's been fighting World War II 29 years after it's already been decided. Still fighting. Still fighting. A war that's already been decided. And many Christians, I think, live. That's a picture of the way we live. The decision of your position with God has been decided, and yet we live our lives still fighting and fighting on this treadmill to try to make to try to do something for God when He says this has been settled at the cross for you. Your salvation is not the work you do for me. Salvation is what I have done for you. That is what God wants the gospel message to be heard as. This man was fighting. In the case of the believer, we often give ourselves to laboring to win or to earn God's favor when we already have it by faith through the work of Christ. We're fighting a battle that Jesus has already won. When we forget about the work, when we forget that it is not about the work we do, but instead the work Christ has done, we either become self-righteous, thinking that somehow we are impressing God, or else we become filled with shame and full of disguises. When a church forgets that reality of the gospel, then the church begins to be filled with either self-righteous people who think they actually have merited God's favor, or else we're full of people who are so full of shame and such a master at disguising it. Those are the two options when we forget the gospel. Self-righteous or shame-filled, full of disguises. What we need to see in this salvation that we see in this, in this narrative this morning is that what makes grace so amazing is that it's grace. It isn't earned. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, very famous passage. If you don't have it memorized, I recommend that you do put this in your pocket. Romans 2, or Romans, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What's in them? What's Paul's message? It is by grace that you are saved through faith, and even that faith is a gift of God. It is God's grace through and through and through. And when we, don't, when we don't know that, or when we forget it, we quickly become either self-righteous or filled with shame. But Christian, if you are His, through repentance and faith in Christ, God's love has already been set upon you, and it cannot be stolen away, because it is not up to you. He is the one that does the saving. That is why when I talk about gospel joy, that's why the gospel joy should be the highest joy in our life. But we get into a danger. This is what people normally say. I can't say that, Darren. 
Because if we say that it's not up to me to earn God's favor, well, then we're going to have people just doing whatever they want to do. They're going to think, okay, I see Jesus, I believe Jesus, I'm just going to go do whatever I want to do. We can't, we can't do that. We can't tell people that God loves them, and they'll just go and do whatever they want to do. But that is exactly what can be said. If you see your sin and you hate it and you turn from it and then you trust to Christ, you cling to Him alone as your only hope of salvation, you know that no work of your own but only through the work of the blood of Christ that has rescued you, if you know that's your only hope of salvation, then yes, go now and do whatever you desire. And who in that moment doesn't desire above all else to please the one that saved the wretch like them? The power for holiness doesn't come by living to earn God's love, but from the joy in knowing that in Christ, God's love for you is already secure. The power for holiness doesn't come by living to earn God's love, but from the joy of knowing that you have his love already in Christ. It comes from living in light of a passage like Romans 5, 1 that says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Does that mean that me, a sinner, a wretch, one who is consistently not living up to all that he desires, that I can have peace with God? That is absolutely what it means. Does that mean that I can exhale in God's presence? Absolutely. That's, that's the whole point of what it's saying. It is not your labor for God that saves you. It is His labor for you that saves you. Charles Spurgeon said this way, Jesus did not die for our righteousness, but He died for our sins. He did not come to save us because we were worth saving, but because we were utterly worthless, ruined and undone. He came not to earth out of any reason that was in us, but solely and only out of reasons which he fetched from the depths of his own divine love. In due time, he died for those whom he has described, not as godly, but as ungodly. So here's what I want for us in this place this morning. A bold honesty about our own wretchedness. That's maybe the most unpopular thing I ever talk about. I get lots of comments on that. But I want for us a bold reality of our own wretchedness. There's nothing I deserve from God except for His wrath. If we don't see that, then we don't have, we're not like the thief on the cross where we started out seeing this wonderful picture. Here is a man at his worst moment ever and his most glorious at the same time. And what we have at the gospel is that picture. We all come to the communion at this glorious moment confessing ourselves, this is our, at our worst moments, racked with sin, failing yet again, disappointed with myself and with others, disappointing God, sinning against God, finding myself at my worst and at my most glorious because I know that it isn't me. I know that it isn't me. It's Christ. It's what He has done for me. And then out of the joy of that knowledge, That is how we walk out these doors, no longer fighting for his love, but fighting because of his love. And we have his love. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes to see this. Open my eyes to see this.
the incredible love that you have for us. You are not in heaven with some sort of, oh, when they reach this percentage of, of goodness, then I might think about working on their behalf. You are the God who sees that there is nothing we bring. And out of your love, because of your love, you worked salvation for sinners. Father, may we see it and rejoice in it as the foundation of all of our joys. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.